So today, we're, we're continuing on our series of uh, the heart of anger. And today we're going to look at the subject matter of repentance and a change from sinful anger. Repentance and a change from sinful anger. We've been several weeks on this. We've looked at what does it look like to be a, a parent who provokes her children to anger. We've looked at what anger is. We've looked at the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. So if you haven't heard any of those messages, I would encourage you to go to our website and please re- listen to those. It kind of gives you a context. And so uh, just to give you a small snippet, righteous anger, there's a such thing in the scripture, be you angry and do not sin. Righteous anger is your anger about something done to God or somebody else, and you have a righteous response. The unrighteous anger is you're, you're the seabed of it. You're angry about something done to you that has affected your kingdom and your rights. And so those really are how you kind of separate out the two. And what we're trying to promote to you, this idea is, whenever the emotion of anger and the feelings of anger start to well up, ask ourselves that first question. Am I angry about something done to myself or somebody else or the Lord? And you're already starting to have a good indicator of where you're at. Now, what I want to deal with today is the idea of, yes, I know I'm walking in sinful anger. I know I'm doing that. Now what do I do? What does repentance look like? What does a change look like? That's what we're going to kind of deal today with the idea of sinful anger. Now, James chapter 4, we looked, at this a couple, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but I want to draw your mind back to this idea of repentance and what it looks like, especially in the world of anger. So if you go to James chapter 4, James chapter four I'm going to read through verse 1 through 3. won't talk as much. We, we did that a couple weeks ago, really focused on 1 through 3. And then I just want to point out a couple things at the back end of James. James chapter 4, verse 1. I'm using the Legacy Standard Bible this morning. If you have a New American Standard and ESV, New King James, King James, probably pretty pretty close tracking with each other. Chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? We're dealing in the issue of really sinful anger now. It's not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. I'm reading this so you kind of remember where we went a couple weeks ago. You lust and you do not have, so you murder. You're envious, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasure. So, verses 1 through 3, what is causing all this sinful anger, this quarrel, these conflicts, these wars? It's our own pleasures. It's our own lustful, idolatrous desires. We want our own kingdom. We want it now. We want it our way. That's what's causing it in verses 1 through 3. Now, verses 4 through 9, we get to some of the repentance part. So he already talked about this, the wars and rumors of wars, the the wars that happen. We're dealing in this area of sinful anger. Now he says in verse 4, let's get to the repentance part. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as the enemy of God. What would verse 4 mean? You have to understand it in the light of verses 1 through 3. We have this idea that everything in life is about us, our kingdom. We want it now. Serve me. Give me what I want. Friends, that is being an adulterer. That is cheating on God. Right? That is being a friend of the world. Being a friend of the world is being an enemy of God. To have that kind of mindset about life where everything's about me and my exaltation in verses 1 through 3 is really putting ourselves at war with God. 
It's being an adulteress. This is what he's saying in verse 4. We're being a friend of the world. Yes, when we are letting loose sinful anger, we are being a friend of the world and hostile towards God. We're being a murderer at heart. We'll look at that here in a little bit. Verse 5. Or do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Murder on the outside and murder of the heart, which is sinful anger. God dwells there, and resides there, and he is jealous for that. Sometimes we think that it's okay to be sinfully angry as long as no one else knows about it. But even that covert kind of sinful anger where it's, I'm angry, I'm sinfully angry, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sleep on the couch. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ignore the person. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do whatever I can to minimize them in life. Even that covert form didn't fool God. He's even jealous after that. He wants the heart. He wants everything. So he says God is jealous. He jealously desires the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. He does not want us being a friend of the world. He does not want us to be adulteresses. He wants us to worship him and not ourselves in verse 1 through 3. Verse 6. But he gives more, but he gives greater grace. Grace saves you, but grace also sustains and sanctifies. Can someone say amen to that? When God saved you, he forgave you of your sin. And part of salvation is that he actually helps you to live more and more like him. So it says he gives greater grace. This is part of what God gives. Grace saves, it sanctifies. Verse 6, therefore it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Who gets uh, grace? It's those that aren't exalting themselves, right? Anger is one of the most damaging things, not only in our relationship with God, but everything else around us. And it's so damaging. And what God does is this. He does not suffer it well for us, and so he humbles us in that. But it says on the opposite, he's opposed to the proud. Anytime we're walking in sinful anger, God's, we, uh, God has set his face against us in that. But when we seek humility, when we seek to exalt Christ and not ourselves, when we seek God's kingdom, not our kingdom, he gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. Verse 7. This is where you start to kind of see, you know, if you're asked this question, am I walking in a repentant life? In the area of sinful anger. I could say any area. But let's just say sinful anger. Verse 7 and 8 is going to help you. Verse 9 is going to help you. Look at verse 7. Be subject therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When we're battling with sinful anger. Do we continue to put ourselves towards the Lord? Do we continue to submit to God? And by the way. Don't don't think that Satan is the one that causes sinful anger. But also I want you to. And it's our own sinful, wicked, selfish, self-exalting heart. But I do want you to understand the devil is a great student. He's watching. He's observing. He is tempting. There are spiritual forces going on around. So yes, Satan does have an influence in our, in our sinful anger. And yes, we are being a tool of Satan when we simmer in sinful anger. Yes, we are. You can't get across from that in the scriptures. We don't want to give the devil too much credit. We also don't want to give him no credit. So he's there, he's tempting, but he is not causing us to sin. That's of our own wicked, sinful heart, but he's definitely tempting. Verse 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Don't you love verse 8? Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Now, let's notice this. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. So we, we get the visceral, cleanse your hands. 
Look at what your hands are. Your hands dirty. We're kind of looking at the outward exterior. Cleanse your hands. Notice then after that, it says purify your what? Now, it's interesting. Change in the Bible. Change happens when there is a change of what? Heart. It results in a change of life. It's there's change on the inside that produces change on the outside. And these two things actually work a lot of times side by side. Although we know in the scripture that intrinsically the heart is the motivated seat of all this. Notice in the text when it's talking about this idea of what repentance looks like. There has to be a drawing to God in verse 7. Satan flees that. If you want to resist Satan, don't yell out, Satan, I rebuke you. Actually, obey God. And then verse 8, draw near to God. He draws near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Look for the outward exterior sinful ideas and thoughts that have permeated and purify your heart. So there's this outward and inward thing that needs to happen at the same time. Then he says, you double-minded. So a single-minded person is, this is what I'm going to do. A double-minded person is, this is what I want to do. Uh, sometimes I go over here. Sometimes I go over here. Double-minded person is, okay, not, I'm, I'm trying to only have anger towards things that are revolving the Lord with a righteous response. Man, on Tuesday I did great. On Wednesday I blew it, right? You know what that I'm talking about, right? This, okay, I'm doing well here, but I'm not doing well here. Today I have unrighteous anger. I'm being self-exalted on Wednesday. Tuesday was a little bit better. Do you you get the back and forth that sometimes happens? That's that double-mindedness. By the way, if you're here and you're kind of going, man, that's me. Like, some days a good day, some days not a great day. Um, You know, I I must be such a complete wretch. Or you might be looking at someone in your life and going, you know, they did well on Tuesday. They didn't do well on Wednesday. They, there must be no form of repentance in their life. And I would say, when you read the scriptures, the totality of scriptures, and understand repentance, repentance, sometimes it's so instantaneous, it happens in the sense of change. But more than likely, and a good majority of the time, repentance is a process. All right? It's three steps forward, one step back. Three steps forward, one step back. If you're going three steps forward, one step back, over the span of time, what are you eventually doing? You're, you're trending upwards. Sometimes we expect that if people are repentant, they are per- perfect. There's only been one perfect person. But when a person is walking in a repentant life, there is progress, progress. The thing I try to emphasize to people is we're not looking at perfection. We're looking for progress, right? Progress. Are we progressing in our sanctification? Now, look in verse 8. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Meaning this is not, this is going to be a back and forth. A constant cleansing your hands, you sinners, and purifying your hearts, you double-minded. Doesn't that remind you of Romans 7, right? Where Paul's saying, the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things that I should, I don't. This battle that wages within, this old, this old man that's there. Notice what happens in verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Some people wonder, like, how do I deal with verse 9? Well, you deal with it in light of verse 7 and 8 in the whole text of what he's talking about. Is that when a person who is double-minded and they're working through the process of sanctification, they're trying to cleanse the outside, for, motivated by the, what God's doing on the inside. They're trying to cleanse their hands and purify their hearts. And the, it's just working at the self-same time through the work of the Spirit. They're trying this, they're doing this, and they fall flat. 
Tuesday was great. Wednesday was terrible. What's happening now? Verse 9. They mourn. They cry. They lament. There's no joy. They're broken before the Lord. And sometimes that's going to be a lot. But here's what we find. Three steps forward, one step back. Three steps forward, one step back. So you might have to, the step back is going to be verse 9. Then you start taking a step forward. So you see that when there's this repentance, this idea of repentance, specifically in the area of, I would say, sinful anger, the manifestations of it in verses 1 through 3 of James 4, we see a template of what a repentant life looks like. A person who's repentant in this area, we find them drawing near to God. They desire God in His Word, in His people, in His church. They desire to take to confess their sins to God, to get it right with others so they can take communion with a clear heart. They desire for others to come and know the wonderful graciousness of who Jesus is so they can experience His same grace. They draw near to God and they're on the lookout for sin. They're looking at it from a heart perspective. How do you know what's in your heart? You'll never know it perfectly, but I can give you a pretty good idea. The next time we struggle with sinful anger, all we have to ask ourselves in that moment is, what was I thinking in that moment? What was I desiring? What was I wanting so bad? Then you're going to have an, a little bit of an idea in that, in that moment of what was in the heart. So we see this idea of verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. What does God want? He wants humility. And when we're walking in humility, we, we don't have the same capacity to be so easily offended with, with, with sinful anger. This idea of, I'm angry at what I didn't get in life. It it just isn't as easy to have when we're walking in humility. Humility is, I'm not making much of myself or less of myself. I'm just not really thinking about myself at all. Life is lived for the glory of God and the good of others. And then when we're living like that, that's when in the right moments we can have a righteous anger. Although I would say, isn't it few and far between? So we see this idea. Now, do this. Go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. Let me show this to you again, just in case... You might be concerned we're just cherry-picking verses to prove our point. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 and go up to verse 22. Paul has laid out the beginning of Ephesians 1 through 3, the doctrinal perspectives of what Jesus has done. Now he's getting to the practical aspects, the change that happens, the process of change. Look in chapter 4, verse 22. He says, to lay aside in reference to your former conduct, this is Ephesians 4.22, the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. So he says, put off, right? Verse 22, put off the old man. Then he says in verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your what? Right? So this is, the Lord is doing this. We're spiritually exercising things, right? There's heart change that's happening. Then he says in verse 23, 24, and put on the new man which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So Paul says, hey, here's change. You put off the unrighteous thoughts and actions, put on the righteous thoughts and actions as the work of the Spirit is renewing the mind. You renew them, you re, we renew our minds through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, through the exercising of the disciplines of God. Like we renew our hearts. And this relays over to James chapter 4 when it says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. That's we're doing with heart. We're dealing with outward. We're doing with put off. We're dealing with put on, right? Put on God. Put off you, your sin. Do you, do you see that? 
perspective, this is how we change. We put off the unrighteous. We put on the righteous as the mind is being renewed through the spirit and work and uh, word of God. Now, that's a nutshell of repentance, an overview of repentance for change. So you might be wondering, how do I know I'm repentant? I'm walking in repentance. How do I know I'm working through the temptation of the double-minded mind? There's going to be this put off, put on. That's what you do. So you have the thoughts of, I can't believe she said that to me. You go, as Jesus has forgiven me of so much more, I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm going to dwell on Jesus. I'm so surprised that you've forgiven me of so much more. You get the difference, right? It's, I can't believe she said this to me, to Jesus. I can't believe you've forgiven me. And instead, Instead, you're putting that thought off and putting on the thought that Jesus wants. And the only way you can actually do that is in the midst of it, that there has to be this renewing of the mind that comes through the word and work of God and through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I would even tell you through the fellowship of God's people. I mean, if you're you don't if you're just living in your own silo, there's probably a reason why your heart hasn't been drawn to God even more. Combination of those things happens and we get. Change. Change happens. So now let's talk about this. Since we're in Ephesians 4, let's keep looking at the text, and we're going to look at a couple things. So now we know what repentance is. James 4, Ephesians 4, 22 through 26, all right? So we're good. You got it. You know it, right? So easy to repent now, isn't it? (laughs) Okay. Now here's what I want to do. Now we know what the meaning of repentance, what it looks like, right? Now let's look at this. There's two kind of big manifestations of sinful anger, right? Remember, sinful anger is your anger about something done to self. It's all about you. But typically it'll manifest itself in two different ways or sometimes a combination of these things. Typically when when we see sinful anger, we see it kind of covertly happening and overtly happening or a very um, kind kind of revealing or concealing kind of way. Let me show this to you in the text in Ephesians 4 and verse 31. As he's, he's been talking all the way from Ephesians 4.22 to 4.32, the put on, put off principles. He says in relation to, to anger, sinful anger, he says in verse 31, let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's the put off. Y'all see that? Verse 31, put off. Then you have the put on in verse 32. Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. Now, I want you to go back to verse 31. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and anger. Now, that word bitterness, it, it has the idea of something going on in the heart. I would describe that as the more covert sinful anger. The covert sinful anger. Covert sinful anger is the kind of anger that it stews. It's kind of like a crock pot. No one can see it. No one knows it. I mean, it's, it, they don't know it at first, but it's simmering, it's boiling, it's going. That actual word anger in verse 31, they, the Greek word for it has this idea of a simmering and stewing. A person who has sinful anger that is covert, is concealing, they typically go underground with their anger. No one else, no one will ever know it. They try to hide it. They clam up. They live in a separate room. They try to kill people with silence. Sometimes the people closest to them know it. If they're asked about it, for instance, in marriage, if they're asked about it, because, you know, that's the great thing about marriage. It's really hard to run when you're in sin in marriage. 
you live long enough with somebody, they can kind of read a lot of the nonverbals, right? You know, uh, like, ah, oh, why'd you create it this way, Lord, right? So you can, so, I mean, this probably has never happened to y'all, right? But for those of you that are in marriage where you were concealing sinful anger, you were puffed up, but you were trying not to show it, and your spouse says, notices. I mean, they notice. They're seeing all the language, all the body language. And then they'll say something, they'll say this phrase to you. Hey, what's, anybody know the next part? Wrong. Then what's our next response? Nothing? <laughs> yeah, that's concealing. That's covert. Now, some people would go at this point, okay, Nick, fine. So what? It's not that big of a deal because it's only in my heart. At least I didn't rant and rave about it. At least I didn't do the other part, which is blow up. We'll look at that here in a minute. Is it really okay, though? Is God really okay with that kind of covert, as long as no one gets hurt, it's okay kind of thought? We know it's interesting. Um, Take your Bible and go over to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Just so you're clearly aware, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God wants more than just the outside. He wants the inside as well. When he redeems us, your ultimate glorification someday is going to be an inward-outward kind of thing. God's given various laws in Leviticus for the children of Israel. Still applicable. This, this idea of the heart of anger is still applicable. We see it. We see it. Matthew chapter 5. But I want to show you something. Look at Leviticus 19, 17, 18. You shall not hate your brother in your, what does it say? You know, a lot of people say in the Old Testament, um, God was really concerned with the heart, but he was concerned with it in the New Testament. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he tries to bring everything to the heart. And I would go, nope, not true. Go ahead and read the Old Testament as well. No, actually, he was always concerned with the heart. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor and so not bear sin because of him. Look in verse 18. You shall not take vengeance. You shall not keep your anger against the sons of your people. So God says this anger of the heart, this keeping, keep your anger. God says, that's not okay. By the way, I love that at the end of verse 18, he says, I am Yahweh, right? Most of your Bibles may say capital L, capital O, capital R, capital B. That means Yahweh, right? Um, Now do this, go over to Matthew chapter five, just in case to see the whole grand scope. God has never been okay with anger in the heart. So this covert anger, this overt anger, this anger of, hey, what's wrong? Nothing, nothing. You know, this, I'm going to silence you with everything I can in life. I'm going to stomp around but not say a thing, and, and I'm still righteous before God. The heart, God cares about. And God's not okay with sins of the heart. And sins of the heart track its way to sins on the outside. I mean, like, when you go from a covert anger to an overt anger, it was already in your heart to begin with. Just so you understand, we don't get angry because of some bodily fluids in our body, right? It's not because like, well, you got to understand, you know, I've got a certain bloodline. Nope. Or man, you just don't understand. I've got a chemical imbalance that causes me to do this. Nope. We have a heart and it is deceptive and deceitful. Now look at verse 21 of Matthew 5. 
Jesus leans in to this idea of sinful anger, and he says, and just so you know, you know, um, you know, anger is the equivalent of murder, right? So that's what he's, well, we're going to see this in the text. So look at it. It says in verse 21, you've heard, Jesus says, that the ancients were told you shall not murder. By the way, that's the 10th commandment, right? That's, that's actually God's, not the ancients. That's God's. But what he's doing is, is he's quoting from their rabbinical sources. Their, their rabbinical sources, they, they had all these rabbinical teachings, right? And so in the Old Testament, if you murdered somebody, does anybody know what the penalty for murder was? If, yeah, if you murdered somebody, the penalty was death. Now, the rabbis had taught this idea of if you murder, look in verse 21, whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. So it's got to go to the court. It's got to go to the Sanhedrin. Verse 22, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry, it's that same word used in four, Ephesians 4.31, this argizo word, with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So he says, hey, in your rabbinical kind of teachings here, your Jewish teachings of your religious leaders, they say if you murder, you go to court. Actually, God's was you murder, you know, you receive the death penalty, but, you know, guilty murder. But nonetheless, you go to court. And he says, even anger at the heart level, even, even murder of the heart, which is sinful anger, you're guilty before the court. Then he says, whoever says to his brother, Raka, which there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people that have had a hard time translating that word. If you have a NASB, it, it says the word probably, you good for nothing. Uh, an ESV probably says insult. Um, some of your translations might just actually tra- not even translate the word, just transliterate it, just call it Raka because they're not sure um, of its equivalent meaning in our language. That's why you see it like that. But nonetheless, we, we know this word Raka has this idea of slander. So if you slander somebody, this is, this is a sinful action. You shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says you fool, which that's this idea of condemning someone's character. That word fool is the word moros. Does anybody know what word we get from moros? Moron, right? Shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. So what is Jesus saying in verses 21 through 22? He's saying, listen... You know that it's wrong to not murder. Even the you, even your own religious leaders have written and said that. Y'all have kind of create they've created a lesser system of that where now you go to courts and and you know there's a lot of debate. God already had a law for that, but regardless of all that, what I want you to understand is this. Your anger has moved to slander to condemning character and even that anger of the heart that we see here, it's enough to deserve fiery hell. So what he's saying is this. Murder, physical murder, is guilt, you're guilty of hell. But even anger of the heart, you're guilty of hell. So let's understand something. Let's go back to sinful anger that is concealing, this covert, where we think, well, as long as it doesn't go on the outside, if it just stays on the inside and I'm just bitter, God's going to kind of applaud and go, well, at least you didn't blow your top. But And Jesus says, no, man, actually, that's still deserving of hell. Like God's law is more severe than murder. It's hell, right? I mean, like, look how far he's going in this. So we just have to understand God's not okay with murder in our heart. He's not okay with sinful anger. That bitterness that we have towards somebody right now, God's not okay with that. 
By the way, that's why I love that we take communion so much because you can't take communion and be bitter, right? You read the Bible. There's some judgment that gets expressed when we do those kind of things, right? So that's like the great thing about taking communion. We have to actually take an inventory of the work of the cross, right? Then we have to kind of get things right where they should be. Now go over to Mark chapter 11. Y'all still with me? Okay. Am I still allowed to be the pastor here? I'm going to get fired after this one, am I? Okay. If you try to, I'm just going to accuse you of murder of the heart. (laughs) Mark chapter 11, verse 24. So what do I do with it? I think the Word of God gives us a great template here. Mark 11, 24 through 25. For this reason I say to you, all things, for this reason I say to you, this is Mark, um, did I say 11.24? Did I say Mark 11.24? Okay, good. Sometimes I say the wrong address. For this reason I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. And whenever you stand praying, what's the next word? Forgive. Wait a minute. Why doesn't it say... Whenever you stand praying, if someone will admit what they did wrong to you, forgive. That, there's other portions of scriptures where you see that idea of reconciliation. Why not here? The reason is there's really two types of forgiveness. There's what we would call heart forgiveness. Then there'd be reconciliation forgiveness. We'll reserve that for another time. But here it's talking about heart forgiveness. Heart forgiveness is where based on the merits of the cross, based on the merits of Christ... I am forgiving you. I'm taking you off my hook, putting you on God's hook. I don't have to get vengeance on you physically. I don't even have to get vengeance in you in the heart. Jesus is capable of taking care of that. I have been forgiven of so much more. As I have freely been forgiven, I will freely forgive even from the heart. So he says this in verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, which means you're praying. You're going to God. You realize there's murder in the heart. You forgive it. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgression. I tell people, when we have murder of the heart, God calls us to immediately practice heart forgiveness. It's not dependent on how worthy or how good someone else repents. It's between us and the Lord savoring the work of the good news of the gospel. And here's the deal. You don't lose your salvation if you do that. But what you do find is this. The the unforgiveness of God in this text is not what we call justification forgiveness. It's not you're going to lose your salvation. The idea is we have put our posture so far against what God is all about that he is distancing himself from us. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt, right? Have you ever thought? Has it ever been in your life, God is so far from me? It's like, man, he's just so far from me. Or I have this weight of guilt for what I'm thinking, for what I'm thinking about this person who's offended me. Have you ever just been ate up? Have you ever had sleepless nights? Have you ever been so unable to focus and concentrate on work or life or anything or family? And just just from the from just this the the from just the always thinking about what someone has done to you, just stewing over the murder of the heart. You know what's happening? 
God is distancing himself from you. You're receiving verse 25. So your father who is in heaven will not forgive your transgressions, your sins. For if you do not, verse 26, forgive, now will your father in heaven forgive your transgressions. I do not believe in the text we're dealing with what we call justification forgiveness. When I was 16 years old, I got justification forgiveness. I confessed Jesus as my Lord and Savior. God showed me through the word. I was reading the book of Romans, and it's like the light bulb went on where I understood, wait a minute, I'm a sinner, I deserve hell. Jesus was perfect. His perfect life for my unrighteous life. He suffered the wrath of God in my place. At 16, I got justification forgiveness. Today, though, I still keep confessing and asking for forgiveness. I'm asking for family forgiveness. And when I murder people in my heart and I do not practice heart forgiveness, God distances himself from me. And let me tell you, some evidences in in, in our life you'll see, you'll be miserable. You will be miserable. You won't have a, I mean, your thoughts will be jumbled. Your sleep will be broken. You'll be nervous. You'll be agitated. You'll try to find different ways to distract yourself. You might run to food. Uh Uh-oh, getting serious now. We'll run to other things. We'll Netflix binge, run to Facebook, hours of endless scrolling. We'll play games on our phones to try to escape it. Unless it's Candy Crush. That one's obviously okay. (laughs) Just kidding. I've never even played. I don't even know. And you know what's wrong at that moment. Yeah. God has distanced himself from you. Because there's murder of the heart. We're not valuing the thing he does and loves most in our life. He's forgiven us. It's like we're saying in that moment when we're practicing this covert, sinful, exalting of self. We're hiding it in our heart. It's like we're saying, God, your sacrifice isn't sufficient. It doesn't matter. In fact, I'm God. I'm God. Like you could forgive me, but I don't have to forgive others. I'm way better. I'm way more righteous than your life was ever, Christ. Now you might be thinking, I'm not really saying that. Yeah, we actually are. You know, you may, we may not be articulating that, but the belief is betraying what's actually going on in our soul. So what do we do? Go back over to Ephesians chapter 4. So what do we do? Ephesians 4. And it's very apparent that I'm not going to get to um, overt anger today. So guess what's coming next week? Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and anger, which I would really put that in the category of overt, covert anger, verse 31. And those next verses after that, wrath, shouting, slander, malice, that's the outward. We'll we'll look at that next week. Now look at verse 32. Let me give you some solutions. Repent. Ephesians chapter 4. Cleanse your hands. Purify the heart. Ephesians 4, 22 through 26. Put off, put on, renewed in the spirit of your mind. The process of repentance and biblical change. Do it, right? Do what James 4 says. Draw near to God. Realize our rebellion against God and our adultery towards God, right? This is the, this is the process of repentance. Realize we're double-minded. Every time the, the double-minded mind happens, we go to verse 9 of, of James 4. We weep and mourn and lament this, this terrible 
um, this, this terrible residue of our old sinful nature that keeps coming after us. And then we keep going back to the Lord. And we put in verse 32. It says this. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other. So here's what it's telling us. It says, when we've covertly done that, what we need to do actually is be kind to the person. Instead of avoiding the person, why don't we try to be kind to the person? Now at this moment, some people may go, well, I'll be kind to them when they're kind to me. And you're still at murder at the heart right there. Actually, Romans 12 reveals to us that when we do that, that could actually bring conviction to their life. I definitely know it will bring conviction to our own life. You know, there's nothing that anybody's ever done to you that you and I can't practice the kindness of God back to them. Have we forgotten Romans 5, 8? But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for good people. Christ didn't die for deserving people. So like, why in the world do we ever think that, that our, own, the, our own brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would only forgive them if they deserved it? Where do we ever get that? That is putting ourselves up to an exaltation part of God. We are calling ourselves God in our heart when we do that. We have made ourselves. That's how, cos- how much cosmic rebellion is there. By the way, if you're not in Christ, what a great reason to understand just how far your sin goes and how much there is a need for Jesus. So we practice kindness in verse 31. Kindness because they deserve it? No. Then it says we, we do it... Um, we practice tenderheartedness. That word tenderheartedness has the idea of compassion. You're trying to understand where they're coming from. You're trying to understand their world, not your world. I love the ultimate motivation. Look at it in verse 32. Graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also graciously forgiven you. Sometimes murder of the heart, people will think, well, if they do right, then I'll forgive from the heart. And I would go, nope, wrong standard. Christ is the standard, right? His forgiveness. That means this. There is nothing that anybody has ever done to any of us, any of us in here that cannot forgive. Do this for me. Everybody say the word nothing. nothing. Say it again. Nothing that anybody has ever done to you that cannot be forgiven from the heart. And there is no way on the authority of God's word to justify a murderous heart. Some might say to this, well, what if someone has abused me? Give me the word. Nothing. Give me the word. What if somebody has lied about me so bad I lost my job? Okay. I don't, I don't think enough of you said it. What if somebody has destroyed my reputation? What if somebody's sin against me has created such hard times in my life? That's the standard. Jesus. Now, when with this, go back over to Matthew chapter 5. I know you're kind of like, man, I'm coming back next week. Man, there's no way. Let me also give you some more evidence of what change looks like. This This is put off, put on. So, we put off bitterness and anger, right? That stewing, simmering anger. We put on kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, as Jesus has forgiven from the heart. And then look in verse 23. 
Remember, we looked at verse 21 and 22, right? Anger of the heart, murder of the heart. God's standard is actually, <laughs> actually, it's hellfire judgment for murder of the heart. Look at verse 23. Therefore, if you present your offering at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar. Go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your present on your offer and present your offering. Go and present your offering. Sorry, I haven't learned how to read yet. Another evidence of, of change is kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. So Jesus has forgiven, forgiveness from the heart. And then sometimes that covert, overt, it may require that you actually try to work towards a what's called a reconciliation forgiveness. That you've already forgiven from the heart, you want to restore the relationship. That bitterness, that bitterness, when bitterness is not reigning, there is a desire to restore. We'll say that again. When that bitterness is not reigning, there is a desire to restore. You're not ready to restore if you haven't forgiven from the heart. When you've forgiven from the heart, there is a desire to restore that relationship. Now, that other relation, that other person may not be forgiving, so they may not, they might not cooperate. It might not always be possible. But from a person who has practiced heart forgiveness and is no longer murdering in the heart, there is definitely desire. There is this, you're worshiping the Lord in verse 23. And what, what gift does God really want in this? He wants you to, you're presenting at the altar, the, the, the gift that God really wants is reconciliation. When God is changing you in this area, you stop being so covert as you start to go, let's actually correct some things. Let's change some things. So there you have it. That's this idea of sinful anger, how to change it when it's in the covert area. Now, worship team, make your way up here. And we have a great song that I think would be great for us to sing. It's a song that really is just going to drive us right to the cross. And that's where you got to take it all. When you're actually trying to deal with this covert anger, this stewing, simmering, sinful anger, once again, the standard is the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. The standard is the cross. That's the whole motivation. No one's, not that someone deserves it, someone else has earned it. It's because Jesus has earned it in our place. Can we stand together? Would you pray with me? I first want to pray for those, anybody here who is not in Jesus, not in Christ, and then I want to pray for the rest of us. Father, if there's someone that right now It happened for me at 16, but maybe it needs to happen for somebody at 32 or at 40. Or there's someone here who has never, in faith, called out to you and asked forgiveness of their sinful nature and trusting you as their sacrifice. May right now be their time. Will they call out to you? Right now. Will they pray to you and ask? Would you let them claim the promise of, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you let them would you let them call out to you? Would you let them follow you? Would you let them say something to somebody? Would you let them follow you as a disciple? For the rest of us as your disciple people, would you let us be also mindful of what the text says about this murder of the heart? Empty us of secular, silly, 
man-centered solutions. Let us choose the solutions of the one true God. Maybe someone here today needs to confess to you their sin and run to the cross. Forgive based on your work and forgiveness. Maybe the, as they put off, they need to put on reconciliation. God, let your text be what drives us, not man's philosophy and definitely not the wickedness of our own sinful natures. For your glory and for your renown. And God's people said, let's go to the cross together.